Good morning, beloved Covenant family. It is so good to be with you this morning. I miss you. And I know that I typically greet specifically the kids each morning, but I want all of you to know from the most senior to the most junior that I love you and I miss you. It's a joy for us to be able to welcome our entire online family with us. Thanks for inviting us into your home this morning. I love the, the way that by doing that, you are really inviting the presence of the Lord into your home. It is so good for us to be able to be together. Well, this morning, as uh, in the light of and kind of against the backdrop of, of all that is going on in our world, we're starting a new three-part sermon series that's called Kingdom Come. You remember when, when uh, Jesus first began to teach the people about this new thing that he was doing in the world. He said, this is how you should pray. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we mean when we pray that phrase, your kingdom come? That's what we're going to be exploring, at least aspects of that, this morning and over the next two Sundays. Today we'll be considering what it means for the kingdom of God to come into the world as, as a whole and, and to reach into its farthest and darkest corners. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at how the kingdom of God comes into an individual life and the difference that makes specifically in the way that we relate to one another. And then two Sundays from now, we're going to be looking at how the kingdom of God informs every specific moment, every interaction or encounter that we have with another individual. So I'm excited about where God will take us in this and would love to have us just pause now to invite God's leading as we start this conversation. Lord, we uh, open our hearts to your word and to your spirit. We pray that you would illumine our hearts by your spirit and that you would equip our lives by your word that we might live in this broken world to the praise of your glorious grace because you are the king. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, kids, this morning I brought along some garden gloves and a garden kneeling pad. You might not know what a garden kneeling pad is for, but anybody over the age of 40 probably does. You know, I love flowers and gardens, but I really don't love gardening. I don't love the, the blisters you get on your hands, and I don't love the burrs and briars and barbs you get in your fingers, and I don't love the bug bites, and I don't like the, the ache that I get in my knees and in my back when I'm gardening, which is why we have these things. Another thing I really don't like about gardening is every year it feels like you're starting over. The flowers that they call annuals are really wrongly named. They should be called once and dones. You plant them, they grow, they bloom, and then they die. And you have to go back to the store the next year and buy a whole new bunch of them and stick them all in the ground and try to help them grow. And then the same thing happens to them. But I think the thing that is most exasperating to me about gardening is the weeds. Just a few weeks ago, I went out into our garden and I spent almost the whole day pulling weeds out of the garden. And you should have seen it at that point, the way that the you could see the roses and the irises and the lilies and the lily of the valley just kind of bursting forth. And now, just a few days later, if you were to see my garden, what you would see is a bed full of 
chokecherry and bindweed and thistle and creeping charlie and wild onion and ragweed. I could go on and on. The weeds never go away. So why do we go to all this trouble gardening in the first place if we're always fighting against this, this, this encroachment of the weeds? Well, I think the, the reason is pretty obvious, and Jesus actually points to it just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6. He says, see how the lilies of the field grow? I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was ever dressed like one of these. And it's really true that by gardening, we are clearing out a space so beauty can come forward. And somehow that beauty makes all that work worth it. So today we're talking about gardening, but we're not talking about gardening in the earth. We're talking about gardening in the world, cleaning out a place where the beauty of the kingdom can blossom and be put on display. So kids... While we're talking, you may want to draw a picture of a garden and maybe even of you gardening. So, what is this world coming to? Watching the news, there is so much unrest, not only in our own country, but all around the globe. Not only the ever-growing virus count that we see listed and changed every, every day, and the protests around the world and in our own nation in response to racial injustice and inequities and unjust treatment of blacks, but also assaults on human rights and freedoms in India and in Hong Kong, an act of terror in England, the brazen drug violence in Mexico City, the taking of the Chaz block in Seattle, and as all of that is happening, depression rates and anxiety rates rising, and, and all of that has just been in the headlines in the last two days. What is this world coming to? It is so overwhelming. There are so many ways and places this world is broken. How are we to respond? What can one person do? What sort of hope can we have for this world? And it's not only overwhelming, it's unsettling. There is so much unrest and uncertainty. Where is all this going? What's going to happen to our nation? What's going to happen to us? Where do we find peace in the middle of this? What is this world coming to? We can forget that God actually answers that question really clearly in the pages of Scripture, spelling out for us how his purposes are being carried out in this world of ours. We begin, as you know, with a perfect world, a garden paradise into which God introduces the first man and the first woman. And quickly, that perfect world becomes a fallen world, a world bent and broken as a result of humanity's rebellion against its creator. And then God sets about reclaiming this bent and broken world of ours in both meanings of the word, reclaiming it as in taking it back for himself, but reclaiming it as in making it the way that it was supposed to be from the start. Well, that happens, according to scripture, in four stages. 
First, Jesus steps into the world from above. Jesus is a man unlike any other man who is ever, or woman, or person who is born into human history because Jesus is God in human flesh. I love and am haunted by John chapter 8, verse 23. You, Jesus says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not of this world. So Jesus steps into the world from above and he inaugurates, he sets into motion the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first words Jesus speaks as he begins his ministry, the time has come, the kingdom of God is here. It's the thing Jesus talked about more than anything else. But the kingdom that Jesus is setting up is not just one more political power among others. His kingdom is no more of this world than he is. John chapter 18, or John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am not of this world. John chapter 18, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So the kingdom then, second, begins to spread in this world after Jesus inaugurates it. Jesus doesn't build a palace and build a wall and build an army. He builds a movement of love. And it spreads from person to person as individual men and women and children recognize his claims as king and surrender to him as king and become his subjects. So remember, we've said this, a kingdom requires just two things, a king and people who recognize his claims and become his subjects. So as Jesus began to carry out his ministry, people in the crowds began to believe his claim, that he was the the king that God had been promising for centuries. And they surrendered their lives to him and they became his loyal subjects. And each time someone puts his or her faith in Jesus, the kingdom expands by one person. It's really interesting, according to the New Testament, the kingdom of God is a realm that we enter and it's a realm that enters us. It's a realm that we enter, Luke chapter 18, verse 17, Jesus says, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into the kingdom. But in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus talks about the kingdom entering us. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God is spreading. It is infiltrating human society one life at a time. Just pause here and ask, have you ever recognized Jesus' claims as king? Have you ever identified him as the, the king that God promised for centuries in the pages of the Old Testament? You know, we pray, we're so accustomed to the words, your kingdom come. Have you ever opened up your heart and said to Jesus, your kingdom come in me, into my heart and into my life? So this is what happens when you do. We'll just touch on this now and we'll come back to this next Sunday. Each time the kingdom comes to one of us, each time one of us recognizes Jesus as king, then Jesus sets about making us new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 
says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. As a follower of Christ, as a subject of the king, I, I'm not just trying hard to live a life that I hope will please the king. The reality, according to scripture, is I am actually letting the king live his life in and through me. What a mystery that is. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives his life in me. So as a citizen of the kingdom, I have a new allegiance, I have a new heart, I have a new purpose, and I have a new outlook. So more on that whole business of our being made new as kingdom people next Sunday. All right, so then to sum up where we are so far, Jesus inaugurates the kingdom when he comes into this world. And then the kingdom has been growing ever since, one person at a time, as each person comes into the kingdom, that kingdom comes into that person. And then, four, Jesus will return and make all things new. When he returns, his focus will no longer be on the transformation of individuals. Now it will be on the transformation of the entire world making not us new, but making all things new. He will consummate the kingdom, absorbing this world into the kingdom purposes of God, and he will bring its final and full fulfillment that we are only getting tastes and glimpses of now in this in-between time. So describing that moment, and at the end of the age when Jesus returns, it says in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who is seated on the throne says I am making everything new and summing up the significance of that moment it says in Revelation 11 the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever so Jesus comes the first time and he inaugurates the kingdom and it begins to spread one heart at a time, then Jesus will come a second time and the kingdom purposes of God will swallow up the world, making all things new. What is the world coming to? That. But you may have noticed as I was going through this list that I went one, two, four. What happened to three? What happens between Jesus coming and making us new and Jesus returning and making the world new. So let's talk about that. In the meanwhile, in this in-between time, what, do we just wait? In the meantime, as one who has entered the kingdom and as one in whom the kingdom and the king have taken up residence, I am called to bring the kingdom with me wherever I go out into this world. Everywhere I go to point up to the kingdom and its reality, and everywhere I go to let kingdom love and kingdom justice pour down through me and into this world. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, Paul says, the kingdom of God 
is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness means putting things right, making things right. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is where the garden gloves come in and the kneeling pad. In the beginning, at the start of human history, God created man, male and female, and he put them in a perfect garden of God's making. No weeds. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing in the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And the Lord took the man, and he put him in the garden of his making to work it, to serve it, and to care for it, to guard it, to tend to it, we're told in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And in the end, at the other end of human history, God will take recreated man, male and female, and put them in a new perfect garden of his making. No weeds. Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. And the throne of God and his servants will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and there will be no more night. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And in the in-between, meanwhile now, we find ourselves as a result of humanity's sin and rebellion against God, living in a ruined garden. Living in a world that is overrun with thorns and briars. And in fact, throughout the scriptures, weeds and thorns and briars are used as a symbol of the comprehensive brokenness of the society and the world in which we live as a result of humanity's sin and rebellion. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, cursed is the ground because of you. The earth will produce thorns and thistles for you. Isaiah chapter 7 Verses 23 and 24 is one of many places where that same picture of the garden being overrun with weeds and briars is repeated. In that day, it says, in every place where there were a thousand vines, there will be only briars and thorns. The garden that is this world is corrupt and it is overrun with weeds and thorns. It is rife with death and decay. But our job description hasn't changed from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We are still called to work the garden, and we are still called to tend it, to guard it, to protect it. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you, is just another way of saying, keep working the garden and keep taking care of it. Until Jesus returns, no matter how hard we work, the weeds will always keep growing back. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15 says, what is twisted cannot be strengthened. 
not, or straightened, not through our own effort. There is nothing that we can do in this in-between time that will make a lasting difference. And by that, I mean, there is nothing that we can do to alter once and forever the course of human history. There's nothing that we can do to change the shape of human society permanently because sin still pervades this broken world. What we do may not make a lasting difference, but everything we do in the name of Christ, even the smallest thing, will make an eternal difference. The parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13 makes this so clear. It says, Jesus told them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds or the wheat also, or the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in the field? Where did these weeds come from? I find myself asking that a lot when I'm gardening. An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because when you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. So let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned. And then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So in this story that Jesus tells, he makes two things really, really plain. The weeds will never go away, not for good, not in this life, not until his return. But even though the weeds will continue to grow, the good that is sown is never lost. It will last, and in some way, it will become an integral part of the eternal kingdom. See the beautiful story, Leaf by Niggle, by J.R.R. Tolkien. I remember having a conversation with some students and their parents who were wondering whether going to Jamaica just to hold babies for a week was really worthwhile. Did it really make a difference? Absolutely, an eternal difference, I said. Those babies aren't likely to remember that they were ever held in your arms, but God remembers, and God will use that in their lives and in your life and the lives of those who look on to that gracious, sacrificial act. And that investment of your time will have eternal value, whether or not we see evidence of it. Even when we don't see it, you're working. We are faced with an overwhelming challenge in this broken world of ours. Not just the massive area of racial justice and equity, but as I've been reminded this week, there are so many other crucial issues that we face as well. So many other places that thorns and briars and weeds have grown adoption, abortion, child advocacy, and the breakdown of the family, wealth, privilege, poverty, and classism, access to clean water and medicine and literacy and education, human rights and freedoms, sexual brokenness, abuse, and pornography, sexual trafficking and slavery, violent crime, war-enforced migration. We can't fix any of these things but we can make a difference, an eternal difference, in all of these things. Now, in an odd irony, we evangelicals can get this exactly upside down. We can be tempted to put our hope in the vicissitudes of this world, and we can be tempted to seek our peace 
in our immediate circumstances and outcomes, in what progress is made on certain issues, in what bills are being passed or, or enforced, in who sits in the Oval Office, in what the stock market is doing. We can try to find our hope and, and find our peace in those things, while at the same time standing back and taking our hands off of the world and its problems and its injustices because of the promise of a per- perfect world to come. We complain and we worry about how overrun the garden is with weeds, but we don't put on garden gloves because we don't see the point. But Jesus calls us to just the opposite perspective on both counts. To put our hope in and to seek our peace in the world to come and not in any particular outcome or circumstance in this world and to be willing to jump in and to get our hands dirty to make a difference in this world, even though the difference we make may not seem to be a lasting difference. What is our hope and where do we look for our peace as we live in this broken world? Jesus answered those questions clearly on the night before he died, contrasting sharply the two realms of of this world and his kingdom. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives, giving and taking back. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Find your peace in me. Put your hope in me. And John chapter 16, verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may find peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But that same night, even as he reminds us that our hope and our peace are found in him and not in anything in this world, Jesus sends us right back into it as his kingdom people. In John chapter 17, praying for us as his followers, Jesus says, they are not of the world even as I am not of it, but as you sent me into this world, I'm sending them into this world. Jesus' victory is played out the very next day as he dies for our sins to reconcile those of us who put our trust in him to God. And then two days after that, his Victory is played out as he rises from the dead to demonstrate that he has defeated death, our greatest enemy. And Jesus' victory will ultimately be made manifest when he returns and he puts all things right, making all things well once and for all. I don't count on anything in this world being put right in a lasting way through my effort or anyone else's. And I don't look to anything in this world to give me a lasting peace. Nonetheless, as I wait, I give myself to the hard work of gardening, seeking to hold back the weeds just a bit and to bring forth just a bit of kingdom beauty in this world, showing love, sharing faith, seeking justice, building relationships across lines of difference, seeking to understand, meeting needs, sharing resources, creating opportunities, repairing breaches in the wall, transforming structures, and advocating for those who don't have a voice. It isn't our job to fix this broken world and turn it into the kingdom. We can't. 
but neither are we at liberty to ignore this world while we wait for the kingdom. We mustn't. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I put on my gardening gloves and I seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And I kneel down on my kneeling pad and I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray that with me now? Our gracious Lord God, we find our peace in the promise that you are the one who is making all things new. And at the same time, as your kingdom pe people, we find our place in the soil of this world among its thorns and briars. And we make ourselves available to you for the hard work of gardening that you might bring forward your kingdom beauty in our midst. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name, because you are the king.